The same way as if we found people on intelligent aliens on another planet, it wouldn't destroy theology. It would just raise really interesting questions. We'd want to know how they relate to their creator and how God deals with them. Like, were they fallen too? They wouldn't be fallen in Adam's sin, but were they fallen in some other sin? This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James, for another beautiful introduction. Again, James Willard who is the announcer for the Seattle Sounders, my favorite soccer team, or as my friends across the pond would say, a football team. Um, hey, I just wanted to say today's going to be a really fun show because I've got one of the most intellectual people I've ever had a conversation with to join me. Uh, he wrote a book um, called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, and the subtitle is The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And uh, And I told my wife last night, I said, look, here's the issue. I am nervous going into this recording because this guy is so intelligent that I feel that this is going to be like, he's going to be bored. He's going to be frustrated that I'm kind of an idiot that he's talking to. And, uh, and so I was nervous in going into this thing, but I knew I had to have the conversation because the whole purpose of the show, if you're new as a listener, is to, to kind of uh, have conversation with people that might not always agree on everything, but are actively on this pursuit of truth and finding it in places that I might not typically find it or have gone. But uh, I'm learning every single week that there are a lot more intelligent people that think differently than me. And um, by maintaining a posture of like this lifelong learner, my goal is ultimately to be able to have conversations with uh, with the various groups of people and and find common ground and learn from them and be able to build some uh, systems in my head that would allow me to make sense of things. And so that's the whole purpose of this show. And today's guest is Dr. Joshua Swamidas, and he is a PhD from the UC Irvine. He's a scientist, physician, and associate professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, where he uses artificial intelligence to explore science at the intersection of medicine, biology, and chemistry. Um, he's a Veritas Forum speaker. He blogs at Peaceful Science. And he just wrote a new book called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And uh, this book is heady, and it's awesome. And so I'd like to get into it with him. So, uh, Dr. Swamidas, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks a lot for having me to be able to talk about that here with you. Of course. Okay, so I was a big fan of the book, as, as you know. Uh, and one thing that I'd like to just kind of clear the air with at the beginning is um, I think that the evolutionary belief system is something that's going to be a hard pill to swallow uh, for some of the listener base of the show. Uh, it'll, and it'll obviously frustrate others. And I got to ask... Let me stop you there and explain something that I think is important. The good news is that I'm not actually talking about an evolutionary belief system. My belief system is really grounded in who Jesus is. Okay. So what I'm really trying to present here is a Jesus-grounded belief system. And, you know, whether or not you believe evolution is true is really beside the point. Just a question, a thought experiment to look and see how evolutionary science, as we understand it, not a belief system, but just the, the evolutionary science, as we understand it, interacts with what Scripture says. Okay, this is good because uh, I don't know if this is the case for you as well, but in the world that I grew up in, these were two components that didn't really work well together to have what scripture says and even a thought experiment about evolution on the same page. Yeah, I was raised a young earth creationist, and there certainly is an evolutionary belief system that is in conflict with with what I read in scripture. And I'm not talking about that here, though. I'm talking about the science that's there, which is fairly neutral regarding theology. It isn't really driven by particular metaphysical agendas or politics. It's just what we're finding as scientists. And I'm a practicing scientist at Washington University, the secular institution. Right. You know, we look at the world, we get evidence, we try and make sense of it. I'm a Christian, so I interpret that um, using the tools of science, but I'm not interpreting it through an atheistic framework. Okay. And we're trying to make sense of the world. And from that, that's kind of what I'm talking about when I discuss evolutionary science, which is not an evolutionary belief system. 
Now, I, I did come to see a lot of evidence for something that I'd call common descent, sure. which is the idea that both humans and great apes share common ancestors, so the common descent of man. But okay. I want to be really clear, that doesn't mean God wasn't involved. It doesn't mean that maybe it happens some other way and it just looks this way. Right. Um, and and it's not driven by agenda. And I can I, I even often you know can pretty quickly explain some of that evidence in ways that people haven't heard before. Hmm. But it's not a belief system. The question now is like, you know, given that apparent reality, how do we make sense of that alongside scripture? And I understand a lot of people who are listening might think that evolution, even what I just said now is a total myth. That's fine. So let's say that evolution is a myth, okay. but let's enter a thought experiment. Let's imagine a world where maybe it really is true. So it's an imagination game. It's like yeah. science fiction. Imagine evolution is true. And then let's look at scripture and imagine that's true too and see if we can make sense of those two things together. That's a really beautiful way of putting it, Dr. Swamidas. And I'm wondering, as you're growing both as a scientist and as a follower of Jesus, um, do those worlds come together more cohesively than you would have thought they would have? Yeah. So I was, as I said, raised in a young earth creationist context home and really connected to scientific creationism and intelligent design and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And it really was convincing. And it really what was, was actually particularly convincing about it is that they they really it wasn't just about the science. I mean, they really convinced me that evolution was just entirely opposed to what uh, what scripture taught. Hmm. And even the Christians who somehow come to terms with evolution, they really seem to reread scripture in these really bizarre ways that I couldn't make sense of. Oh, fascinating. Something happened, though, is I, I actually started reading Scripture more. I actually read Genesis more and more closely. And instead of taking what people s- said Genesis said as truth, and instead of taking what I imagined Genesis said as truth, I actually looked and saw what it said. And, and I'm not talking about moving away from literalism or anything like that, just reading it as a real account. And not going figurative with stuff, but just reading what it actually says rather than what people told me they said it, they thought it said. And I just found a lot of surprises. There was a lot of places where it was just odd how much young earth creationism that I'd been taught diverged from a literal reading of Genesis, which was started mm. to become very disconcerting. I, didn't, I couldn't make sense of that. Okay. And what that did is it opened up space to wonder, well, okay, so if I actually look at what scripture says instead of what man says about scripture, right? is there any conflict here? And I really started looking around for the conflict and I couldn't find it. I started to become a real skeptic of the conflict. Hmm. Uh, I never doubted scripture through this. Uh, that was really my starting point. Okay. And I would say I wasn't even ready to look at the evidence in science until I really understood what God was saying in scripture. And I still take what God said as scripture and scripture as true. Okay. I I, I trust scripture as God's inerrant and infallible word. I'm uncomfortable with a lot of the gymnastics people do with Genesis to make it either be more figurative or more young earth creationist. I want to actually take scripture for what it actually says. So one of the things I was sharing with you before we started recording was my first job was actually as a radio producer for an organization called the Institute for Creation Research that was initially in San Diego. And that had some of the world's leading self-proclaimed creation scientists uh, that work there. Henry Morris, Dwayne Gish, John Morris. Uh, these were some of the most brilliant Christian young earth minds that were doing research day in and day out to prove the literal six-day young earth creation model. And I've come quite a way since that job, what now, 20, 20 years ago, exactly, um, to thinking about some different ways of viewing the creation of the world and creation stories and how to view Genesis 1. And we should, we should, we should pause here, too, for a moment, too. I want to I really emphasize that there's many different types of young earth creationism. Good point. And not all of them do what I would say is gymnastics, right? So my parents were from immigrants from India. They just picked up scripture. They read it the way they understood it. And they came to that view. And I don't think they took, did any gymnastics. And neither did I. So what I'm talking about is a little different here, which is exactly what you're describing here um, with, uh, with, with Dwayne Gish, where there's something else going on there, where there's gymnastics. So like with my parents, I could say, well, okay, so let's actually look at what scripture says. And we'd look at it together and say, oh, okay, maybe that wasn't, my initial impression wasn't actually what it says. And we could work through that. But uh, with a lot of uh, people that I met in the scientific young earth creationist world, they had some very fixed interpretations, regardless of what scripture said. 
And that was really concerning to me because what I think, well, look, the best part of creationism, the most important part that shouldn't be lost is a high view of scripture. Oh, that's good. Or we're, we're committed to that even over what science tells us because we know it's true because God told us. And I never departed from that. But just what concerned me so much is a lot of the public proponents of young earth creationism, especially when I started engaging with science, really departed from that best part of creationism to really start emphasizing what they said over what God said. That's a great point. And I appreciate you making that distinction early on here in the conversation. Uh, one of the things that you start with early on in the book is this idea of of how much of what we believe arrives from theology as our baseline and not science or proper scientific claims as our baseline. In fact, the hypothesis that Adam and Eve were created de novo arises from a baseline of theology and not a proper scientific claim or even conclusion. Because science is not guided by theological agendas, I'm curious how you read Adam and Eve from a scientific standpoint. That's a great question. So one thing that's really confused some people is that I have no problem to throw down you know, the, the, you know, the million dollar word for a moment with methodological naturalism, which is this idea in science that we don't really consider God's action directly. I have no problem with that. And the reason why I don't is that to do science, we kind of need to have some limits because if God's involved, anything can happen. (laughs) Fair. And so we can't merely make any claims if you could always just have that loophole of what God did. But, uh, but at the same time, I think that God does act in the world. So I think when I do science, I'm not really considering that. But when, you know, I sit back and think of theology and try and make sense of everything together, then, you know, yeah, I'm thinking about, okay, how do I make sense of how the world looks, not considering God with the idea that I believe that God is actually involved. Okay. So that raises a question when you think about Adam and Eve, because Genesis is legitimate evidence of the past, but it's not the type of evidence that science considers, right? Sure. The idea of de novo creation of Adam and Eve, God can do that if he wants to. He can make a person out of scratch, but that's not an idea that science considers. So how then do you bring science into dialogue with scripture and to think about that theologically to make sense of everything together? That's what you're asking me, right? Yes, correct. So the way how I thought about that is that, first of all, what we're doing is not precisely science. What I would say is it's the dialogue between, between science and theology and between science and scripture. Okay, good clarification. And what I'm doing is I'm saying that, well, let's just take as a hypothesis. You could even call it an improper hypothesis that what scripture said is true, that Adam and Eve were de novo created. That means without parents, out of the dust and out of a rib, not by an evolutionary process, but by a direct and miraculous act of God. Let's just take as a hypothesis that that is true. And now that is my one miracle I've put into the story, and it's in the hypothesis. But now I'm going to have a a hard line and say past that point, I'm not going to use miracles to explain away any difficult data. Okay. So now I'm not going to invoke any more miracles. Not because I don't believe God doesn't do anything, but because I don't want to cheat as I'm looking at the evidence. Okay, that's good. And so then what I'll do is I can start with that improper hypothesis and then just ask, okay, so if that's the case, do I see any evidence that shows that that's false or troubles it somehow? And I find out that if there's people outside the garden, it turns out that there's no evidence against Adam and Eve, de novo created. And that is in the similar way that a scientist would say that even though they're an atheist and they don't believe that in the virgin birth, they they would also agree that there's no evidence against the virgin birth in the same way they would disagree with uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. uh, And also science can't really properly consider that at the same time. They would also agree that there's no evidence against the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which also I believe is true. So in the same way, what, what's happened with the de novo creation of Adam and Eve through my book is that it, a lot of people have been convinced, including atheist scientists, that Adam and Eve fits now into the same category as the virgin birth and the, and the resurrection. It's established by what scripture says, and there's no evidence in science to disprove it. And that's a pretty big change from even you know just uh, a year ago or even two years ago where even Christian scientists were arguing that the evidence demonstrates that uh, de novo creation of Adam and Eve is false. That just turns out to be not true Okay. because by the rules of mainstream science using that pattern I just told you. So there's a couple of really key lessons here. One is that, you know, we've been told that science is atheistic and we've been told it's atheistic because it doesn't, 
consider God's action. Well, that's just not true. That rule was actually put in place first by Christians. The reason why we have that rule is so that we're not cheating as we're looking at the evidence. And when we come up with difficult evidence, just coming up with a miracle out of nowhere to explain it away. Sure. And that's also, once again, you know, going back to, as long as we're talking about it, Young Earth Creationism, that's the thing that just bothered me the most um, about it too. Uh, Noah's Ark is a great example. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about that story that just really raises questions. Now, I was very comfortable as a Earth creationist, just saying, well, God, like, you know, made some sort of miraculous bubble around the ark <laughs> yeah. and miraculously took away all the poop of the animals and sure. miraculously kept that thing together. And it makes no sense by any sort of physical means that actually God could do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. If he wanted <laughs> but to. But the part I couldn't understand is all of like the backflips to explain all of these things. Hmm. And, uh, and then, and then at the end of the day, they were willing to, to put a miracle out anyways, too. So I just couldn't understand how it was that this they were saying that the evidence was behind their side when they were willing to and, in fact, did pull out ad hoc miracles yeah. all the time to explain away difficult evidence. Yeah. And then um, and then what really was the kicker was when I looked at Genesis and found out that their claims about even Noah's flood didn't even really match scripture. Hmm. And so, you know, with that, it's like, OK, so you have your view of scripture, not scri- what scripture actually says, your view. Sure that you are so convinced of that when there's evidence that seems to trouble it, you're going to whip out a miracle. <laughs> I I just, I could not follow that. It just, it wasn't tenable. There's better ways to be a young earth creationist than that. Yeah. And you know, I wonder too, if there's almost a, a skewed baseline when it comes to this conversation, because I've had a lot of conversations recently with uh, Jewish rabbis who would even argue that the way that we're reading Genesis the Genesis account of Adam and Eve and creation even, we tend to take a look at it as more of a, a literal translation when even to the first tiers, they would have seen it more allegorical than an actual literal text to be studied uh, verbatim and blatant. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's debate about the genre of Genesis 1 and 2. But even if you take a literal view, it's not a problem. It's <laughs> So the problem, once again, that I had, once again, there are many types of earth creationism. And so I'm not talking about it broadly. I'm talking about specifically the type that I experienced in scientific earth creationism. If you had, the problem was actually the departure from literalism. I mean, a great example of this is if you read Genesis 1, the earth exists before the first day. You're kidding me. How have I never seen this before? And so you have to kind of sit there and go, wait a minute. So if I'm going to read this literally, it says that the earth exists before the first day. So then all of a sudden that troubles the entire story. Okay. This is blowing my mind. I don't know how I've never seen that before. Um, I'm thinking too of something that I came upon a couple, I don't know, maybe half a year or so ago that I've not been able to shake is that the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are almost exactly backwards. Well, yeah, yeah. That's another thing too. One thing that was really Passover was that I mean when I read Genesis one and two, how do we make sense of those two creation stories? I mean they're they're talking about creation events and they end in opposite ways because Genesis one ends saying it was very good. Genesis two ends saying that it was not good. <laughs> and so how do you how it just seems like a direct contradiction to say that Genesis two and three occur within day six. That just doesn't make any sense yeah, because exactly. day six ends with God saying it was very good. Genesis four ends with God saying it's not good. So, I mean, that's a, about as direct a contradiction as one could possibly imagine. Yeah, totally. And to, it, what, what was really remarkable about this too, it's not so much that they made the wrong choice per se in interpreting it. Cause I think there are some scholars like Jack Collins is a friend of mine who really believes that there's a way to put those together. But what was so remarkable about it to me as I came to really once again read scripture is that the question of how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was never on anyone's mind. Ooh, that's really interesting. And so it's kind of like there was an answer that everyone was certain of and that it was the only answer, but no one had even really stopped to ask the question or even frame the question and consider that, there, that maybe there was other answers. And maybe there's other answers that are even more consistent with literalism. And frankly, I, I think it's very hard to justify that version of young earth creationism because it's so in conflict with a literal reading of, of scripture. You know, another element of uh, early on scripture that I always had an issue with is what happened to these people 
that were outside of the garden? How did things expand so quickly? Uh, were there people outside the garden from from the beginning? Were Adam and Eve only it? And why would somebody who maintains a young earth creation uh, mindset, like where should they stand in terms of these outside of the garden folks? Well, the reason why someone who is young earth creation should be open to the idea of people outside the garden is because the best of creationism is a high view of scripture. And the best of creationism is also an awareness that what God has said to the church through history of the last couple thousand years matters, and it shouldn't be abandoned just because of science. And we see both in scripture and in the, and in the Genesis tradition, long before science brought a challenge, that people have wondered about this question for a very long time. And the reason why is it seems like scripture suggests it. Having nothing to do with evolution uh, people have wondered, for example, just by looking at scripture at the, the question of Cain's wife and the people that inhabited that city. And the fact that, you know, yes, Adam and Eve had other children, but that's only talked about in chapter four of Genesis, not sorry, chapter five of Genesis, not chapter four when, when Cain is there. And they've wondered about that. And so for a long time, people have just thought there was people outside the garden. And the challenge actually wasn't from evolution and from a scientific point of view. Uh, the real challenge came about 500 years ago with the discovery of the new world. And when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as they say, he found the Americas there. Of course, other people had been there before, but that was really the first time that came into the consciousness of of, of the world together that, Hey, there's people across the globe everywhere. And people couldn't really under, imagine at, the, at that time, how everyone would be connected to Adam and Eve. Now it turns out that their instincts were wrong, that if Adam and Eve exist, if there were real people in real past, we all descend from Adam and Eve, but at the same time, they didn't know that back then. Hmm. <laughs> and so that really brought people back to scripture to wonder again together about how do we make sense of this? Now they made some wrong turns, or at least some people did. Some people made the turn to think, well, okay, maybe God made people in other parts of the world that don't descend from Adam and Eve. That just turns out not to be true. That's called polygenesis. It's false. It's, uh, it's sometimes even been connected to racism. And the good news is we just know that it's not true. But what we learn out of that is that for a very long time, and by the way, you can even go back farther. You know, when I was a, when I was a young earth creationist, I really wondered about the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Yeah, who hasn't, right? I wondered about, like, what's going on? Who are these people interbreeding with the daughters of men? And actually, if you look at the original text, it doesn't say the daughters of men. Like, the word for men or mankind or human or humankind in Genesis 1 through 11 is not actually human. There's no word human there. The word is actually Adam. So it seems like it's talking about Adam and Eve and their descendants. Oh, interesting their lineage of Adam and Eve. And so when you actually look at that, this isn't something else I didn't know back then, but you still get this sense that there's some sort of interbreeding happening. And even uh, Ken Ham himself, the great the great Ken Ham, uh, uh, the Ark Encounter, they, ha- they have an exhibit there where they have a coliseum that shows giants in a, uh, in a coliseum fighting with dinosaurs and all of that. It's like a pretty fantastical scene. It's kind of cool. Um, and he didn't get that out of nowhere. He got that out of you know, historical speculation, the book of Enoch from about 200 years before Christ was wondering about exactly that. The idea of there was these giants and these giants actually persist past the the flood. If you look in numbers, there's a reference to the Nephilim there. And so there's this question, you know, well, why is, why is it that scripture is making space for things outside there? And it turns out that, you know, I mean, another thing too, is another great example of a place where if you read it literally, it should be raising these sorts of questions, which is why it has raised these questions through history. Because if you read through Genesis 2, about a third of the chapter is just making very clear that there's borders to the garden. The garden is in a particular place that there is, uh, there's a border to it. And in Genesis 4, when, they're, when they sin, Adam and Eve are exiled from that garden and an angel is there to guard their entrance back into it. So it's a physical place that does not expand across the entire earth, which once again raises questions about, well, what's going on across the earth? And so for all of these reasons, you know, the traditional account, the Genesis tradition, actual text of scripture includes a mystery, a gigantic question mark 
outside the garden that people have filled in in different ways. And what I find out is that, you know, that's, I mean, honestly, it's one of those things about scripture that makes it so beautiful and attractive and alluring and also robust. And that also turns out to be why science doesn't actually even, can't even possibly disprove it. Because if there's people outside there, maybe what's going on is that those people weren't the topic of scripture. And that's okay, because they're not really, they're not even even around anymore. I mean, there are, are very distant ancestors, but they're not here anymore. And maybe God created them a different way, for example, by a providential process of common descent. But really, the story of Scripture is about Adam and even their descendants. So maybe that's what's going on with, with Scripture and theology. And that leaves it entirely intact. And then maybe what's going on in science is that it's just telling us the story of the people outside the garden, expanding that ancient mystery. In the past, we've wondered and we didn't know. But now through science, now we, we know their story. And it's a, it's a really beautiful story. And it's our story, too. And I love that you do, you're doing it in this interview, and you've also done it in your book, is you're making this sort of space. You're making room for the possibility of anything happening. So even in this interview, you're saying, well, what about this? Or what if I propose this? Or what if I propose this? And you're allowing for the text and for science to have a little bit of breathing room to see if there's any sort of dancing room between the two of them. What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to make space within mainstream science to think about the Genesis account and to make space for people who care about scripture, people like me. And I think the question comes is, can those people make space for us? And so one of the things that we look at with the church right now is we're divided on things that aren't really that important. It's not that necessarily that we have to agree, but we can disagree and be undivided. Can we, be, can we disagree and be, be connected to one another? And I think the way to do that is really this idea of, you know, making space for our differences. And it's not about trying to change your point of view, but is there a way to make space for someone like me? That's the question. Do you find that there's a reciprocal fairness from the scientific community that you're brushing arms against every day? I think people are really curious. When I first put this forward in 2017, I didn't have tenure. Uh, so th- it took a little bit of bravery to come forward with this, and it was important to do. But what I found out is that my colleagues were fair to me. That's so cool to hear. Uh, they don't. Most of them are atheists. But I'd also say a lot of them are curious about Jesus. They just, Christianity doesn't make sense to most of them. And they don't have someone that can explain who Jesus is. And, you know, just because of the weird spot I'm in, being very public about my faith now, you know, people are curious. They want to know. And they are fair to me. And one of the things that's actually a concern or sadness even is that many of the churches I know don't know how to make space, make space for them, even if they're just seekers. One, one of the more disturbing things I've observed is even how some churches and some Christians have really put the emphasis on the disagreements they have with mainstream science on evolution over the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Hmm. You know, That's so tragic, man. We can approach Jesus whether or not we believe Jesus, uh, evolution is true. He's greater. I think the reason why it's so hard for us to make difference, space for our differences here sometimes seems like we're holding on to some anti-evolution idols. And I wonder if maybe we could lay some of them down. Even if evolution's false, that's fine. Jesus is greater. I agree with that, and I think most Christians would say that as well. But if they really believe that, don't you think that they'd have an easier time laying down some of these idols? Why do you think they're so hard to get rid of well, why do we hold on to our idols? Well, we have a sinful nature. <laughs> like we encounter the living God and then we make man-made idols. <laughs> we, we, we read God's word and then we replace God's word with our interpretation of God's word. We are idolatrous people. We have wandering hearts. That's what we do. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, so what are we losing? Well, we're losing uh, the untamable lion <laughs> of Judah that's dangerous and powerful and and is frightening and attractive uh, we're replacing that with something that's controllable and understandable that we made and so we have to give up something we made to to take hold of something that's greater that's really well said and that's something that is going to give me uh, definitely something to think about right like 
we do say Jesus is better and he's greater, but if we're not actually willing to give up stuff and lose a little bit of control, then do we actually believe that in the first place, you know? Uh, one of the things that you mentioned um, that was a significant part of the book, and I'm going to say that there's this concept you propose that is so complicated to me and my little brain that I don't even know how to frame this question well. So I'm going to ask it as ignorantly as I'm able to, uh, and hopefully you can pick up what I'm throwing down and expand on it. But you talk a good bit about Adam and Eve being universal ancestors who are not restricted to single lineages or rare individuals or even a single location. But you mentioned that the best estimate is that they would be universal ancestors of everyone alive AD1, not the number 81, but AD1 and afterwards. And I'm wondering if you could explain this this argument that you propose to our listeners who probably have no clue what I'm talking about. Yeah, so I talk about AD1, which is really just the rounded down date from Acts 1.8. So it's interesting when you read Genesis, it doesn't, I mean, it seems to suggest that there's people outside the garden, but it's actually very hard to build a case from Genesis alone that everyone descends from Adam and Eve. Where that actually comes from in scripture is not actually from Genesis. It's from the New Testament. And the three key passages probably are Acts 17.26, Acts 1.8, and Romans 5.12-14. So uh, let me go through those. Um, Acts 17.26, Paul is in the Aragopagus, and he tells the Greek people there that from one, which could be interpreted one blood or sometimes, but it really just says from one, God made all the nations. He didn't say all the people, but all the nations. Some people have interpreted that as Noah. Some people have interpreted that as Adam. That's, that's, one, that's one place. And the other uh, example is uh, 1.8, where Jesus asked the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. If we theologically think that hearing the gospel is related to descent from Adam and Eve somehow, which somewhat debatable, but that's how some people have historically understood it. If that's the case, you can you can infer then that the idea that we all descend from Adam and Eve at 81, rounding off to be clear, everyone decide, descends from Adam and Eve. Another, uh, the other place is Romans 12, 14, where it says death enters, uh, I mean, comes to all mankind, not to animals, but to all mankind uh, through the sin of one man, Adam. And of course, in that passage, it also says, and hints at people outside the garden, saying, to be clear, there were there was sin in the world before before Adam sinned. Okay, I've never thought of this before. But that sin wasn't held against anyone because the law hadn't come yet. And if you look at the story of Genesis, it's actually really interesting because it's Adam's sin. Yet we can see that the the serpent sinned before him, and that this and that Eve sinned before him too. And so what's going on, if you look at the story closely, you find out that Eve never was given the command not to eat of the fruit. Hmm. Neither was a serpent. Only Adam was given that command. That's fascinating, man. And so, so it's really not talking about the existence of sin before Adam, but it's talking about something about Adam's sin. And I think what's going on is that Scripture is teaching us is that Adam was the first person who got a direct command from God and violated it. Maybe other people had a sense in their heart of what's right and wrong and violated it, but Adam was face-to-face with the living creator of all things who told him, don't eat of this fruit, and he went and did it, and that had consequences. (laughs) So those are the three key passages, and they're all in the New Testament. Uh, Before that point, it's it's much harder to make that case, and, and, you know, and so that's that's why... uh, why, uh, you know, the 81 date is there, there. And it turns out if we care about genealogical ancestors versus genetic, so that's a new idea, right? And the key point here is that scripture doesn't use scientific words to explain things. They didn't have a concept of genetics or DNA thousands of years ago. That's something we just discovered 100 years ago. 
the right way, the literal way of reading Genesis is to focus on the ordinary meaning of words. Yeah, this is so good. You said that that blew your mind, right? Why does that blow your mind or stopped you in your tracks? How does that, why did that do that? Can you explain it to me? Yeah, because I never considered this idea of looking at the building blocks of how to read things. And I'm always reading things in hindsight, looking backwards, not looking at it as in the time and space at which it was written. I'm looking at it as here's what I know in 2020 based off the information that has been presented to me. And now I can assume the fullness of what that text was suggesting when it was originally written. And looking back on, on something like that was just a concept that I had never considered, like actually reading the text based off the time and space in which it was written. Yeah, yeah. So part of what was going on is that in our modern context, we think that DNA and genetics are are the same thing as genealogical sometimes, right? But it turns out they're different. I'll explain that in a moment. But another issue is exactly what you're talking about, is that when we think backwards on the text, we just take our own culture there. And we make it say things that it just couldn't. And the problem with that is that, the, and to be clear, I'm not saying that we're taking Genesis figuratively. I'm actually saying the opposite. I'm saying I want to take it literally for what they meant. And they couldn't have meant DNA because they didn't have a concept of it. What they did mean is exactly what they wrote. They were talking about ancestors giving rise to descendants, you know, fathers and sons, offspring. That ordinary understanding of the terms ancestry, which is a genealogical understanding of ancestry. This is blowing my mind. Now, what we find out in science is that against our expectations, if you go back just a few hundred years, the majority of our ancestors aren't giving us any DNA. So they're genealogical ancestors, but they're not genetic ancestors. We're biologically connected to them through a chain of descent. However, it turns out by just the luck of the draw, the majority of them end up not giving us any pieces or stretches of DNA. (laughs) Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's mind-blowingly cool. And so with that in mind, that's part of what starts to build the case of like what actually Scripture cares about is genealogical ancestry. And that can arise really recently. So it turns out that if Adam and Eve were just 6,000 years ago, uh, as recent as then, then they'd be ancestors of everyone by 81. There would have been people before that time that descended from them too. Probably everyone discussed in scripture would actually be a descendant of Adam and Eve too. Everyone that read scripture through history who received scripture would have been a descendant of Adam and Eve too. But in the more distant past, there would be people that did not descend from them. That would be biologically the same, but you know, there's questions and a mystery once again, how, what, how, what to do to make sense of them. And it's okay. In the same way as if we found people on or intelligent aliens on another planet, it wouldn't destroy theology. It would just raise really interesting questions. We'd want to know <laughs> how they relate to their creator and how God deals with them. Like were they fallen too? They wouldn't be fallen in Adam's sin, but were they fallen in some other sin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so this is really fascinating because I've recently had a conversation with a professor saying that as we get further and further in scientific developments, it's becoming a lot more plausible that there is life existing out there in the universe apart from planet Earth, and we actually have to take into account uh, what salvation looks like or what redemption looks like or the fall looks like for potentially other planets. Well, it's complex. So, I mean, there's been various views. So if you go 50 years ago, people might have even been thought it would be common to find it. But then some people thought it'd be very rare. I think the big puzzle, it's a big paradox. Why isn't the universe teeming with life? And some people say that that's evidence that God specially created us, and maybe one sense it is. Other people say it's evidence that, that God did not create a universe as hospitable to life, which might actually have some legitimacy too. <laughs> I don't know how to make sense of that. I mean, I can argue it either way. But, um, and I would just say that we don't know. But one of the, the most, I think, important pieces of text, which I really encourage people to read right now for us right now as we think about origins, is a piece called Religion and Rocketry by C.S. Lewis. I mentioned it in the book, but if you read it, what he did about 50 years ago. It was a little bit longer than that, maybe 70 years ago. I forget the date. But there's this essay where he just wonders about people outside the garden, people on other planets, meaning that. And so what's going on is that people at that time were saying, hey, there's evidence. If we, I mean, we think that we're going to find life on other planets, and that will be a major threat to theology because it'll show that God made people that didn't descend from Adam and Eve. 
wait a minute, that sounds a little bit similar to what we're discussing here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it reminds me of a project we did at the Institute for Creation Research where we did a children's project. And I remember the script being something about how there's absolutely no way life could exist anywhere else in the universe because there's no way that Jesus could go around dying over and over and over again for each different planet of people who had who had fallen in their own sin. What it sounds like to me, honestly, is a very insecure approach to scripture and theology. Where, you know, you kind of have to defend a particular answer. You don't want to engage questions deeply. I mean, you know your answer even before you ask the questions. I mean, I don't entirely understand why that's attractive to people, except to recognize that a lot of people seem to be attracted to it. Uh, But I liked how C.S. Lewis handled it. He basically said, that's just nonsense. That if these aliens existed, we don't know if they do, but if they did, uh, they would be created by the same God that created us. God would be their God too. And then he started to wonder and enter the thought experiment, even though he didn't even agree that they existed yet and we'd found them yet, but just say, okay, so how could we make sense of original sin and all these sorts of things in in that imaginary world? And in a way, that's exactly what I'm doing in this book. I'm just saying, yeah, I understand that many of the readers of this book, many people in the church are just convinced that evolution is nonsense. By the way, it goes the other way. I talk to atheists, and a lot of atheists have really enjoyed the book and read it. And I tell them, hey, you know, I get that you're completely convinced that scripture is a myth and Adam and Eve are a myth. That's fine. I get it. We can both enter the same story, the same thought experiment, and disagree about what parts of that, parts of that story are fact and which parts are fiction. So let's just have a conversation together about it. And I love that because it resonates so deeply with my heart in creating this specific podcast, this show, is that I want to engage people uh, that would typically be on different sides of the spectrum of me, not always 180 degrees different, but maybe even 30 degrees different, and say, can we find a middle ground? Can we enter into a conversation and learn from one another and understand one another and be patient with one another and really seek to understand the other? And uh, and so I really appreciate that that's your heart, and that was a posture of your heart when you were writing uh, writing this book. Um, okay, I got two questions left for you, and I want to talk about the image of God because this has always been a favorite topic of mine. Because I always believe that it it was a basic building block on the worth of a person. It, it set a standard baseline for every single person, even our worst enemies, that they are image bearers of this uh, image of God. They're they're there's an aspect of them that represents a portion of what God's like. But you reframe the whole idea of it by ultimately asking, well, what is the image of God? So I'm curious, when you think about the image of God and the image-bearing aspect of the creation story, where do you stand with it? Yeah, so I think that's an interesting question. So we're rightfully concerned about how to understand the image of God because Scripture talks about it. At the same time, Scripture doesn't actually clearly define for us what the image of God is. (laughs) (laughs) Another point that I've never truly considered. Oh, my gosh. And so there's this, yeah, so there's, and so what I did is actually reviewed, you know, a large range of different ways in which theologians and exegetes, these are people who study Scripture or exegetes, have been wondering through what the image of God is. And yeah, most of us are really deeply impacted by Martin Luther King, right, who grounds human worth and dignity in the image of God. And to be clear, everyone alive today is in the image of God. And we do have uh, human rights and dignity, to be clear. But what is actually the relationship between all these things? I think what's going on here is how do we make sense also of the fact that God is speaking to us through scripture, but there's so many different views on this. I think what's going on is that in theology, questions about the image of God have become a proxy for a bigger question that, or a secular question that a lot of people ask, which is, what does it mean to be human? And we're asking that in a whole ton of different ways. And, and the thing about that grand question of what it means to be human, which is the question ultimately in my book too, is that it unsettles every simple answer you might have. And it's, it's dynamic. Like it's, it's a grand question. There's many ways to approach it. There are definitely wrong answers. There's definitely answers that seem to be in the right direction, but it's not like there's a single, you know, set of syllables I can encant right now that will foreclose that question going going forward. And I think that's what's going on with the image of God. And that's why I think we see that instability in in it. 
I think that because of that, though, I don't think it makes sense to ground the image of God or, or to use the image of God as grounding for human rights and dignity because people have so many different views of it that I don't know if we, that's the best way to think about it. There's other ways. So one way is I went to Gregor, St. Gregor of Nyssa at the very end of the book. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah, I do. He's considered the first abolitionist in all history, the first person in all history who argued that slavery is wrong in every context. It is never right for a human to own another human. He argued that in 400 AD. And he he's also, he's called one of the, called one of the Cappadocian fathers. He's one of the people who helped write the Nicene Creed. <laughs> okay. So the question is, how did he come to that? Well, it is from his understanding of the image of God, but maybe in a strange way. So he understood the image of God not um, as human rights and dignity, but as a calling in the world. Uh, the dominion call of Genesis 1, where it says to go forth and subdue all of creation, right? Yeah, sure. But but he really hones in on is that it says that we're supposed to subdue the beasts of the field, but it doesn't say we're supposed to subdue other people. Ooh, that's really good, man. God gave us the right to have dominion over creation, but not over one another. And in fact, he says that God himself does not take that dominion over man. And so for us to take dominion over someone else by domesticating or enslaving another person is to claim for ourselves something that God himself uh, has granted us and doesn't want to want to take. So what he's saying is that God gave all, all people a gift of freedom that he himself doesn't want to violate and that it's such a violation of the created order for humans to take possession of other humans that it is impossible to countenance any form of slavery. That was his, that was his view. Do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. And it actually uh, paints a great picture, a tie-in to Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, yeah. But the key thing here is that it wasn't that because they're in their image of God, they have rights and dignity. Rather, it's because God gave people a gift of freedom that the language of the image of God references that we know they have rights and dignity. And and so then that, that I think actually is a much more sensible way to think about it. And uh, so God does grant us human rights and dignity. And actually scripture speaks about this, but it's not that because we're in the image of God, we have rights and dignity. Rather, the, fa- the way how God discusses the image of God gives us clarity that we do have rights and dignity. And what's beautiful about it too is that actually allows us you know, connects us back to this deep history of, of our faith where we find out we can learn more about how Christianity really came to be the first religion that rejected slavery in all of its forms, or at least one of the first people. Now, of course, later on, Christians do take up this stuff too because we're sinners. Remember we encounter the living God and we turn to man-made idols? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we tend to do it over and over and over again. But there's still something there that you see about you know, I mean, at that time, too, everyone across the globe was practicing slavery, not American slavery, which is was uniquely evil, but some version of slavery at that time. And, you know, kind of in that spot where that would be the normal thing to do. Then you see, you know, Gregor of Nyssa saying, well, wait a minute, maybe not. Yeah. Thank God for him, huh? Okay. For the sake of time, I got to wrap this up. But this is one of the headiest books that I've ever read. It, um, it made me experience so many different emotions, and it forced me to do what I love most, which is learn new ways of thinking and trying to uh, be intellectually honest in my pursuit of truth. And so I just want to thank you for that. What were the emotions that you experienced? Yeah, good question. I mean, it started off with um, a little bit of frustration of me trying to shave off some of the things I've been taught since Sunday school. It uh, caused great excitement because the amount of beauty that you referenced, it created a good amount of um, of mystery and beauty, but it also just kind of was Narnia's uh, door to a new world. I had always taken a Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4 approach and felt like I had the story figured out and it used to be literal in my head. Now it's more figurative and imaginative and allegorical. And what you've done in this book is said, kapow, rethink everything. And this gets way more complex than any attention you've ever given it in the past. 
you know, it is like Narnia. You find out there's this whole new intellectual world. But what's crazy about this is that even though it's a thought experiment, it could be true. This could be Narnia in our real world. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And I do hope it's true. And I was on your website, uh, Peaceful Science, last night just doing some some research. And, and I just really appreciate that you take this approach, this open-handed approach to desiring to figure out what is true and what logically makes sense and what's story and what's what's literal and what's not. And I think you're doing a flipping good job at it. Well, we wouldn't want to say that we want to twist Scripture. I'd say is that there's things that Scripture tells us. But the Genesis tradition, we had Jewish people read it. The ancient way of reading it is called the Midrash, right? Yeah, you're right. Where you're concerned not just about what Scripture says, but where the ellipses are, the dot, dot, dots. Where, you, where you're supposed to kind of imagine and wonder and think through, well, how do we fill in those details and how does that make sense? And that, that's that's honestly what makes Genesis such great literature. It's not just God's word. It's deeply engaging in the same way you want to see a great movie or read a great book and hear a great story. There's something alluring and capturing about it. You're right. It is it is an amazing book and it's an amazing story. And uh, I'm just kind of curious here as we close up, um, what would be your challenge uh, or maybe even your closing words for people listening today? Something that you'd encourage people with or challenge them with or encourage them to spend time thinking about? Uh, you, you have a couple seconds left. What would you say? Yeah, I would say that, you know, this is this is the grand conversation, the good conversation. This is part of the good life is to engage these questions. It's often a, a really ugly quagmire, a fight, but it doesn't have to be. It's often an internal conversation that we have with ourselves uh, to figure out personal conflicts or whatever that we're fr- or that we're trying to work through about this. But it doesn't have to be. This book is actually written also for non-Christians to read too. So consider doing this. Consider buying a couple copies and you reading one, and then giving one to a couple of your friends and reading it along with them that that don't actually think that Adam and Eve are real that they think that that's the myth and they're convinced that evolution is true and see what happens as you consider together in that same story where maybe you disagree about which part of the story is myth and which part of the story is, is actually history. Maybe, maybe together we can start considering the grand question of what it means to be human. Oh, that's so good. Hey, Dr. Swamidas, thank you again so much for being with us today. I I want to encourage you to keep writing so that we can have you back again, because this has been really enjoyable. Thanks a lot, Keith. Again, Dr. Swamidas' book is called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. You can pick it up anywhere books are sold. It's through InterVarsity Press Academic, uh, but I know Amazon's got it. And um, if you want to learn more about him, he blogs quite proficiently at PeacefulScience.org. Again, Dr. Joshua Swamidas. What a fun interview. Thanks for being with us today. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.